all of your smiling faces, your beautiful faces out there. And I know the presence of the Lord is with us as well. Thank you for those wonderful testimonies and praises. What a great, great time of worship we've had with the music. Thanks, music team. That was beautiful. I love the skit. That's the way to get rules, don't you think? That was uh, funny. Thank you, Wendy. You know, I love the first day of Bible study, and I think it's because it reminds me of the first day of school as well. But I like the first day of school. How many of you liked the first day of school? Are there some hands? Oh, good, good. So you're liking this day. Very good. Yeah, you like that first day of school. And I have a story to tell you. Um, Many of you know that I came from Miami, Florida to Fort Worth to go to TCU to become a nurse, my childhood dream. And I've told you some of the stories. I I came, I'd never been to Texas, didn't know anybody here. I came in July um, to orientation and learned a great deal about myself and about Texans and Texas. And so when I came the end of August, I thought I was prepared for the beginning of school. And in some ways I, uh, I was prepared, but there's always that little something that can happen um, that you haven't prepared for. And for me, um, it was when I went to the cafeteria with my roommate. I lived in the dorm, so every night we'd go over and eat dinner at the cafeteria, and our dorm mates and everybody would come. And uh, I don't know if this was the first day of school, but it was very close to the beginning. And on the menu was chicken fried steak. Now... This is hard for you to believe, but in Miami, I had never heard of chicken fried steak. So in my mind, I saw that and thought fried chicken. And go up, order chicken fried steak, and uh, I can remember sitting down, and there's that chicken fried steak, you know, covered with white gravy. There was probably mashed potatoes and gravy as well, and probably biscuits and gravy, and, you know, there was gravy everywhere. And I looked at it, and I cut into it and had a bite, and... uh, thinking, you know, what is this? Doesn't look like fried chicken. And uh, tasted it, and it wasn't fried chicken. And I looked at my roommates and dorms buddies there, and I said, what is this? And they looked at me, you know, duh, chicken fried steak. And I thought, wow, you know, this is different. And uh, really, to this day, I'm not a big chicken fried steak fan. (laughs) But I never order it thinking I'm getting fried chicken. I also had another uh, good experience with food when I came here, and that was Mexican food. Now, that tells you how old I am. You know, in the early 70s, Mexican food wasn't the nationwide cuisine that it is today. And so in Miami, we didn't have Mexican food. So that was the next thing my roommate and all my friends did was they took me down Berry Street to El Chico's. It's not even there anymore. And we had Mexican food. And after I figured out how to eat my taco without, you know, sticking the roof of my mouth... I loved Mexican food. In fact, uh, when I went home at Christmas for Christmas break, I could hardly wait to get back in January to eat some Mexican food. Now, the point of my story telling you that today is we've had lots of information. We're getting ready to have our lesson. Um, It's so exciting to see you all here. But at the end of this morning, if you feel like you were coming for fried chicken and you suddenly feel like this is chicken fried steak, and you are a little overwhelmed by it all, I just want to encourage you to hang in there. Keep coming back to Bible study. I promise that God will bless you for studying his word. 
I'm hoping that this turns out to be Mexican food and that when we break at Christmas, you will hardly be able to get back in January for Bible study for that Mexican food. And if you're really just so amazed, um, and this is so different than you were thinking, please come up and talk to me afterwards. I would love to get to meet you and know you, and I'd love to listen to you and, and talk with you about Bible study. I love studying the Word of God. And this semester, all 11 weeks from now until Thanksgiving, we are going to be looking at a study on the 12 disciples of Jesus. I'm going to give you some introduction into some background material today, and then we're also going to look at the first disciple, Andrew. And so we see the pictures of the um, 12 disciples there. In your notebook, on that front pocket, you will have an outline. You will have, for today's lesson, you will have a verse sheet, and you will have a map. I love maps. Uh, we are going to be looking at that map today and also all through the study. So it will be good for you to keep that handy in there so that you can look at uh, different things. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Lynn Kitchens and Shelley Davis are also going to be teaching with me this semester. Uh, they are excellent teachers, and you are in for quite a treat uh, when they teach. Shelley's coming uh, next week to um, teach the lesson. I have been interested and fascinated by the 12 disciples for a long time long time. I first remember studying them when I was in college. Someone had given me a little book about them uh, for my birthday, and I remember studying, and I was so interested and fascinated by the disciples because their personalities were so different. They were all so different, and yet Jesus used each of them in such a mighty way. If I asked you, what do you think of the 12 disciples? Some of you might answer me, like some that I've talked to the past few weeks, and you might say that they were humble men, obscure men, with humble occupations. They were slow learners, and they had weak faith. And that, in part, would be true, because we see in several places Jesus um, talking to them about their weak faith. One of those is in Matthew 8:26. That is on your verse sheet. And this is the story of Jesus uh, and the disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. There was a big storm coming, and Jesus was asleep. And the disciples are like, Jesus, you know, wake up. We're drowning here. And this is what he says to them. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Others of you might say of the disciples that they were great men of faith that they were martyred for their belief in Jesus as they went out into the world to proclaim the gospel message, that they are truly the founders of our faith. And you would also be correct, because Jesus also said in Matthew 19:28, he says to the disciples, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Some of you might say that you don't even know any of the names of the disciples. Or maybe you would answer like somebody very close to me answered when I asked him. He quickly said, I know four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, some of you in here may think that, but really only Matthew and John were disciples. We're going to talk about the other two in just a minute. But it doesn't matter whatever you know or don't know about the 12 disciples. By Thanksgiving, I think each one of us is going to know a lot more about them than we do right now. 
The 12 disciples do hold an exalted place in redemptive history, and rightly so. They truly are the heroes of our faith. Revelation 21, we studied Revelation, and this summer we read the verse uh, in, in chapter 21, verse 14, and it says, The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The names of Jesus' disciples will be written on the foundations in the heavenly city. But as John MacArthur says, that doesn't diminish the truth that they were as ordinary as you and I. He goes on to say in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, we need to lift them out of otherworldly obscurity and get to know them as real people. And that's what we're going to do this fall semester. We're going to look at the 12 disciples as the Bible presents them, down-to-earth men with flaws as well as different abilities and different personalities. As Lynn Kitchen says, we're going to put a face on each one of the disciples. And as we learn more about the 12 disciples, it is my prayer that we will learn more about ourselves, that I will learn more about myself and you will learn more about yourself, and most importantly, that we will learn more about Jesus. Because truly the reason that we are here is to be drawn closer to God. We read his word, we study his written word, so that we might know Jesus, the living word. John 1, 1 talks about Jesus, the word of God. And Jesus came to reveal the Father so that we might know God. If we just come and study scripture and all we do is learn facts and and put knowledge in our head, then we have failed. If we, It's not just our minds, but it's our hearts that also need to be engaged as we look at the scripture so that we can behold the beauty of Jesus and then our hearts and our lives are changed as we're drawn closer to him so that we love him better. And loving him better, we serve him more faithfully and we walk with him more closely. The goal of studying scripture is to want to follow Jesus. What I most love about the disciples is that they were all different, and Jesus used them with their differences and even with their flaws in mighty ways. And so I hope that this study will encourage each one of us, you and me, to let God use us in a mighty way, just like we are just like you are. Jesus loves you. He's crazy about you. God made you with unique personality and unique abilities, and he wants you just like you are. We don't have to look at someone and think, I could do this if I was like so-and-so, or, you know, I I can't do something. Um, I wish I was more like this person. The truth is that God made us special and unique and wants us just the way we are. We don't have to feel disqualified because of, and you fill in the blank. What is it for you? Maybe um, you feel disqualified because of your past. Maybe you feel disqualified because of some sin in your life that you think God just can't use me now because of that. Maybe you feel like, well, I'm a detailed person. I'm not a vision person, so I can't be. Or maybe you're a vision person and you think, I need to be a detailed person. Whatever that blank is, maybe it's my tongue that gets me into trouble, so I can't be used. We're going to see a disciple like that. Maybe we think that we jump before we look, and so we're impetuous. We're going to see that too. Maybe you have doubts. 
we're going to look at a disciple that was a doubter. I hope that from this study, you will be encouraged to come follow Jesus just like you are. This whole Bible study begins with Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, all God and fully man, coming to earth to bring salvation to mankind. He came to save us from spiritual death. Jesus' work on the cross, his atoning, sacrificial death, made it possible for sinful man to have a relationship with the holy, living God. He was the promised Messiah that the Jews had been looking for from the Old Testament. Jesus was going to bring in that new covenant that we read about in Ezekiel. He would be the ultimate sacrifice so that there would be no further need for any other animal sacrifice or any sacrifice. Hebrews tell us that Jesus' blood shed on the cross is sufficient to atone for the sin of all man. Jesus provides a way for us to know the Heavenly Father in a right relationship by providing atonement for our sin. Jesus' ministry on earth was very controversial. In fact, the religious leaders of his day rejected him almost immediately. And although there were some big crowds in the beginning that followed Jesus, by the time he went to the cross, there were very few left following him. But Jesus' plan was to train 12 men to carry his message and his ministry into the world. And you don't see anywhere Jesus having a backup plan. He knew he didn't need one. All he needed was these 12 men. So why 12? Well, numbers are very symbolic throughout Scripture. Numbers usually mean something. And the number number 12 represents governmental perfection. 12 represents governmental perfection. There were 12 tribes that made up the nation Israel. Those were the 12 sons of Jacob, who God renamed Israel. And those 12 sons and their families grew to when we see them in Exodus. They are 2 to 4 million strong. They go through the wilderness. They cross the Jordan into the promised land that God had given them. And the 12 tribes divide it up, and that becomes known as Israel. But the majority of Jews, and the religious leadership in particular had gotten so far away from the heart of God that they didn't even recognize Jesus as the disciple, as the Messiah. And they certainly didn't accept him. They had so corrupted the Old Testament faith that it was unrecognizable. Instead of a relationship with God, they were all about religion. They were about legalistic works. The religious leaders were more concerned with their man-made regulations and performing meaningless ceremonies than worshiping wholeheartedly the living God and their creator. The one who had chosen them through Abraham to experience God's divine favor. But the Jews cared more about being descended from Abraham than they cared about the faith of Abraham. By choosing 12 disciples, some theologians suggest that Christ was in effect appointing new leadership, that this would be new leadership for this new covenant that he was bringing in. Christ was bringing this new covenant to all who would believe in him, and the 12 apostles represented this new leadership. So why these 12? 
Why these very men? You know, we know that Jesus prayed and that he chose them sovereignly, but we really don't know what Jesus was thinking when he picked the twelve. On your um, map, you also have a list of the disciples in columns. They're in groups of four, and these are sort of their prominence. And in the first group is Peter, um, known as Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In the second group, we have Philip, Bartholomew, who is also called Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew. And in that last group is the most obscure, James, son of Alphaeus, Labius, known as Thaddeus, and also known as the other Judas. He has three names. Then there's Simon, and then Judas Iscariot, who we do know, because he is the one who would betray Jesus. Now, when we look at these uh, disciples in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, They really appear like quite a motley crew. Two are hot-headed with tempers. Uh, Some are doubters. Some uh, are impetuous, looking before they leap. Some never leap. They're just looking. They can't uh, make decisions. We have some that, uh, one that blasphemed Jesus and um, one that ultimately would betray him. Not exactly who we might pick if we were going to have a ministry that we wanted to go out into the world. They were mostly from Galilee, and if you look on your map, you will see that Galilee is up north. It's up at the top. Um, in, the, in the middle of your map is a squiggly line. That's the Jordan River. It goes north, and that's the Sea of Galilee. And then down south, it ends up in the Dead Sea. So Galilee was in the north, and down south we have Judea. And the people down south uh, looked down upon those people up north. They uh, looked at them as uh, old-fashioned, uneducated, unpolished country bumpkins. And they kind of fancied themselves as refined, intelligent, um, well-trained. In the south was Jerusalem, and Jerusalem had the temple, and so the religious leaders and the educated people mostly came from the south. And so they looked down upon the north. But it was these very people that had proud hearts and closed minds to new ideas. The disciples would be more teachable. I also think that it's possible that Jesus chose these disciples just because they were so different. And also, I think he might have chosen them because they seemed like such unlikely choices. They didn't seem... They wouldn't look like to the people around them that they would be the types to be leaders of this new covenant. In 2 Corinthians 12.9, and this is on your verse sheet, it says, But he said to me that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think Jesus chose these because... Uh, his power could shine forth through uh, these unlikely choices of disciples. We know that Jesus did choose the disciples, and he chose them sovereignly, and he had a purpose. And we see that in John 15:16, also uh, on your verse sheet. And this is Jesus talking to, this, to the disciples. And he says to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give whatever you ask in my name. Jesus chose them to bear fruit. 
Also, we see his purpose in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The word there for disciples is mathetes, and it means um, learner. And that's what the disciples were. They were learners. Uh, There were many people that were disciples of different teachers in those days. Uh, People would follow and learn um, after a certain rabbi or a certain teacher, and they were called disciples. And Jesus also had um, disciples following him. We see that in Scripture. They're the ones that followed with him, and they listened to what he had to say, and they learned from him. But these 12 were special. Jesus called them special. And in, um, in Mark, and I don't have that on there, but I want to read it to you, there was a point where Jesus calls them out not just to be di- disciples, but also to be apostles. So listen to, to me as I read from Mark 3. This is verses 14 and 15. Mark 3, 14 and 15. And it says, He appointed twelve, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And these are the twelve. And then there's listed those names that we've already read. That word there for apostles is apostoloi. And that is the Greek word that means messenger or sent one. When Jesus calls them out, he is giving them a special authority and responsibility to be his representatives. It's called uh, the Office of the Apostolic Ministry. He is calling them out to be um, different than just disciples, but also apostles, his ambassadors. They would go out to represent Jesus. We know that Jesus took their training um, very seriously. And a lot of what we're going to be looking at in the scriptures over the next 11 weeks is Jesus training the disciples He takes it seriously, and we know that because we see him pray for them in John 17. And that is a prayer before he goes to the cross. And he prays to the Father specifically for those 12 disciples. He takes their training very seriously. A.B. Bruce, who wrote Training of the Twelve, talks about how Jesus, the master teacher, taught them carefully and painstakingly because... They would go out and the influence of Jesus would be on the world forever. So Jesus took this training very seriously. The disciples would be trained by the master teacher and they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and they would be able to go out with great faith and great hope and great love and change the world forever. There's two things that I see um, that the disciples had in common. And the first one is that they were all seeking spiritual truth. When Jesus called them, they were seeking spiritual truth. And the second thing was they were willing to follow Jesus when he called them. They were willing to follow him. They were seeking him and they were willing to follow him. And Jesus can take each one of us if we're seeking and we're willing 
and he can use us in mighty ways. The disciples were trained well by the master teacher and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they were able to do great things to change the world forever. Let's change gears now and we're going to look at Andrew, the first disciple. Andrew's one of my favorite disciples um, and you will soon see why. And we're going to look at him in John chapter 1. So let's turn to John 1. We're going to start in verse 35. John 1, verse 35. The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now, let me stop there for a second. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. He came to prepare the way for the Lord. He was calling uh, the Jews to repentance so that they would be ready for the Son of God who was coming to earth, for the Messiah. John the Baptist knew this. John the Baptist was um, the one that baptized Jesus when he started his ministry. And so he knew which one Jesus was. And we see that two of his disciples are with him. John the Baptist had disciples, those that were following after him, trying to find out about this Messiah. And he says to them, look, the Lamb of God. Verse 37 says, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now we know that these two disciples, we're going to meet, uh, read in just a second, in verse 40, that we know one of the disciples is Andrew, the one we're going to talk about today. And it's pretty much agreed um, upon by everyone that the second one was his friend John. John the disciple who wrote this Gospel of John. So the two disciples are following Jesus, and Jesus turns around, he sees them following, and he asks, what do you want? The New American Standard says, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What do you want? In the early 70s, it was the time of the Jesus movement. And there became all these bumper stickers. And those of you that are old enough to remember these bumper stickers, this is when there was the big one way. And then there was a bumper sticker that would say, honk if you love Jesus. And then there was a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is the answer. And not too long after I saw that bumper sticker, some of you will remember this, there was another bumper sticker on different cars and it said, well, what is the question? Kind of, yeah, a verbal battle that was going on with bumper stickers um, in those days. I, I don't know if they, how evangelically sound those bumper stickers were, but anyway, you saw this little battle going on. But I thought about that when I was reading this and studying this, and I thought, this is the question. This is the question. Jesus asking you, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you seeking as you live your day and you take a care of your loved ones or you go to work or you go through your routine every day you could ask yourself, what am I seeking? What do I want? And the answer truly is Jesus. For me, the answer is Jesus. And for these two disciples, the answer was Jesus as well. And so they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. 
So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Now the 10th hour you might want to write in there is 4 p.m. So it was in the late afternoon. They spent the rest of the day with him. And John doesn't tell us what Jesus said. I so would love to know what their conversation was as they spent the day with Jesus. But what we do know was that it was enough to totally convince Andrew that this was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the next verse 40 says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. The first thing Andrew does is to bring him to Jesus. Now on your outline I have Andrew was with the blank. And you might want to fill in that blank with born evangelist or decisive or bold. But to me, Andrew speaks of humility. Of humility, because in verse 40, when they mention Andrew, they say right away that he is Simon Peter's brother. Peter was Andrew's big brother, and it's obvious right from this first encounter that Andrew is always in the shadow of his big brother, Peter, and that Peter is usually in the spotlight. You know, if it had been me, I might have been tempted to keep this good news of Jesus to myself for a while. I might have thought, I know something that Peter doesn't know, and I'm going to keep it to myself before I tell him. Maybe I'm going to enjoy this friendship with Jesus for a little bit before I tell Peter. But that's not what Andrew does. In humility, the first thing he does is go to his big brother Peter and bring him to Jesus. Peter's going to go on and be um, sort of the leader of the 12, and he's going to be the one that preaches, and and 3,000 are going to come to know Christ because of him. Peter is going to be in the spotlight. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those were the Gospels, the uh, first four books of the New Testament, and that is where we get most of our biographical information about Jesus. Now, two of those authors we talked about, Matthew and John, were disciples. But the other two, Mark and Luke, were not. Mark was younger, and I want to tell you a little bit about this to give you some background information. Mark was younger, and he traveled around with Barnabas and with Paul, and he is widely agreed to have become a convert under Peter. He uh, heard much of Peter's teaching and preaching. And it's thought that Peter was his main source in writing the Gospel of Mark. Luke, on the other hand, was a physician. He was a Gentile, um, probably a Greek. And he tells us that he wanted to write a historical account of Jesus. He wanted to um, put together this story of Jesus um, as the Son of Man. He probably interviewed many people, probably interviewed Mary to get that story of Jesus' birth in the beginning of the book of Luke. And then we have John. And the, the thing about these um, four Gospels, they were all inspired. These men were all inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they also had a different purpose for why they were writing the book. Matthew the disciple, was writing to the Jews, and he wanted to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the king of the Jews. And then we have Mark writing mainly to Gentiles, and he wanted to portray Jesus as the servant redeemer. And so you see that in his book. 
In Luke, he wanted to show the humanity of Christ, whereas John wanted to show the deity of Christ. John wanted to show us that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus is God. The four Gospels also include different events and some of the same events. And so it's kind of hard to put a timeline and to know where these different things happen. And then you have, uh, to make it even harder, the book of Matthew was written topically. There were um, topical studies in, in Matthew, and so the things aren't sequential. Mark is probably the most sequential of any of the four Gospels. So to get a time, and they start at different places. Matthew and Luke, they start with the birth of Christ. Mark starts right in with, um, in chapter verse chapter 1, verse 1, with Jesus' ministry. So I just want to tell you a few highlights um, so to kind of help guide you as we go through and look at these disciples over the next 11 weeks. The first thing that happens when Jesus begins his ministry, and he's about 30 years old, is he is baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he is tempted by Satan. And we read those accounts in Matthew 3 and Luke 3. And then, like I said, Mark 1 starts right off with the baptism of Jesus. And then he goes in to be tempted, and we see that in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, and still in chapter 1 of Mark. John, on the other hand, he gives this, his first 14 verses in chapter 1 talk about Jesus being the word of God, the word that was, God, was with God, and that the word that is God. And then he goes on to tell us this story that takes place after Jesus has been baptized and after he has been tempted by Satan, and now he's back in the south on the other side of the Jordan, and that's when John the Baptist sees him again. So when this story takes place in chapter 1 of John, know that Jesus has already been... Um, baptized and has been tempted and is back having this encounter with Andrew and Peter. We're going to know shortly after this, we're going to look um, in the weeks to come, but shortly after this, Jesus leaves the south and he goes up north to Cana in Galilee and that's where some of the disciples were also invited to a wedding and Jesus performs the first miracle of turning water into wine. And um, On your map, you can see where, if you look down by the Dead Sea and you see Jericho right above it, if you look right on the other side of the Jordan in that blank space, you could put a little star because that's probably where John the Baptist was, where he baptized Jesus, where Jesus was when he meets Andrew. They're all down south. Then he goes up north and just go all the way up north to the left of the Sea of Galilee and you will see little Cana. You will see a little dot there for that city. And that's where they're going to go for the wedding. And then after that, it seems like the disciples go back to their homes. We know that Peter and Andrew were from Bethsaida. They're from uh, the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and they were fishermen. And so it looks like at that point, Jesus is doing ministry in Galilee. Sometimes the disciples would be with them. Sometimes they would be back at home doing their work. Until we have the story in Matthew 4, and this uh, verse is on your verse sheet, and this is where Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter and Andrew at their boats, and he says to them, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At this point, Peter and Andrew, and 
few verses down, we also know James and John leave their fishing nets, leave their business, and follow Jesus full time. Now this is about a year and a half, um, or maybe a year, into the ministry of Jesus when they begin to follow him full time. And then the next important event, which happens a little bit later, was that uh, verse, those verses that I just read to you from Mark 3, where, John, where Jesus calls out the twelve and he gives them that calling to be not just disciples, but also apostles. And he calls out the twelve to be apostles. And then the next place that we see Andrew is in John chapter 6. So if you want to turn there. And this event is the feeding of the 5,000. And at this point, this takes place after Jesus has called the 12 to become apostles. So this is taking place after that. Andrew and Peter have been following um, Jesus around and being with him for a little while at this point. Now this is the story feeding the 5,000. Most of you um, are familiar with that. This was a point in Jesus' ministry where he had a great crowd of people following him and coming to listen to him. We know there were 5,000 men this day, and there were women and children as well. And so Jesus comes to them. It gets late in the evening, and he says to his disciples, what are we going to feed them? Now, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he used this as a teaching opportunity, and we're going to see this many times in the Scripture, Jesus asking questions as teaching opportunities. Um, and what we're concerned with today, we're going to look at this uh, feeding of the, this miracle again in a couple of weeks. But today, for this lesson, what we're concerned with is Andrew's response. So look down at verse 8, and we read another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Andrew, once again, is doing the right thing, and he is bringing a small boy with a small lunch to Jesus. He's not sure how Jesus will do this, but I think Andrew is the disciple who knows that nothing is too small or too insignificant for Jesus. I think Andrew knows before Jesus even does this miracle that Jesus is going to be able to take this small lunch and do something great with it. Jesus goes on to pray and to break the bread. And as you know the story, he fed the 5,000 with 12 baskets of food left over. You know, we see Andrew as part of that first four inner circle. And yet, Andrew is never concerned with just the rich, the famous, the influential, what we might call the pretty people, sort of the popular in crowd those who could help him financially or socially or some other way. It's so easy for us to get caught in that trap where we see the value in people for all the wrong reasons. Andrew had the great quality to be able to see value in even the small and the insignificant. Andrew could see value in the small and in the insignificant. The last place we're going to look at Andrew is John chapter 12. If you want to turn a few pages over to that, verse 20. John chapter 12, verse 20. And um, 
this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. This takes place on Tuesday before Jesus is crucified on Friday. So this is very close to the end. And we read in chapter 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. And Andrew with Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Here we see a third place where Andrew is once again bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew is not prejudiced and he's not confused. He knows that Jesus will not turn away anyone that truly seeks him. And Andrew wants people to know Jesus. Andrew is concerned for people. He cares about the individual. Andrew cares about the individual. It doesn't matter if it's his brother or if it's a stranger, foreigner, or if it's a small boy. Andrew brings them all to Jesus. It's easy to see why Andrew is one of my favorite disciples. You know, he's never really in the inner circle. He's always on the fringe of it, and yet he doesn't seem to mind. In humility, he's willing to take the back seat to Peter and his friends, James and John. He knows that Jesus cares about the small and the seemingly insignificant. Andrew was definitely the most thoughtful and the least contentious of the first four. He labored quietly for Jesus without seeking roles of prominence. Tradition says that Andrew took the gospel north after Pentecost. He probably went into Greece and then up into Turkey and on into Russia because he's the patron saint of Russia. He's also the patron saint of Scotland. He was crucified in southern Greece near Athens, tradition tells us, on an X-shaped cross. And some of you, maybe in James Avery, you've seen that X-shaped cross. It's called St. Andrew's Cross. Tradition tells us that he hung there for two days. He had a slow death. And the whole while he was hanging there, he would call out to people and continue to tell them about Jesus. There are many of you that walk humbly and quietly and work quietly for Christ. Your name doesn't get mentioned, but you know, like Andrew, that there is value in the small and the seemingly insignificant. Nothing is insignificant to Jesus. Some of you may bring people one by one quietly to Jesus. You don't stand up and speak in front of many. Some of you may be teaching two-year-olds because you never know which one of those two-year-olds might grow up to love Jesus and introduce him to the next Billy Graham. You know, I read a story about Dwight L. Moody. He was the great evangelist of the late 1800s, and he uh, was a great preacher and led many to Christ, and he was in America and in England as well. Most of you have probably heard of Dwight L. Moody, but very few people will know the name of the um, Sunday school teacher who led Dwight L. Moody to the Lord. The story goes that he was a humble man, but he went to see Dwight. He was a teen, Dwight L. Moody was a teenager in a shoe store working in Boston, and the Sunday school teacher went in and told him about the love of Jesus, and Dwight gave his heart to Christ and went on to um, teach many people about Jesus, leading people one by one. Andrew led his brother Peter to the Lord. He took people one by one, whereas Peter is going, we're going to see later, is going to preach to big crowds. You know, I love the parable uh, in Matthew of the master 
and the servants. The master's going away, and so he gives his servants different amounts of talents to take care of. And the first one has five talents. He takes care of them very well, and so he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then the one that has two talents, he has less than that, than the other one, but he is faithful with those. And we see the master who represents Jesus, and that verse is on your verse sheet. He says the very same thing to that servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. If you are here today and you are seeking Jesus and you are willing to follow Jesus, then one day you too will hear Jesus say to you, well done my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the love that you have for each one of us. It is um, so wide and so tall and so um, awesome and amazing that you love each one of us so much. And I thank you for that, Father. Lord, I thank you that uh, we can see in the lives of these disciples how you can take unique personalities and differences that you have put within each one of us, how you can take those, Father, and draw us to yourself and then use us in mighty ways for you. Father, how you can take the small and the insignificant and multiply it and use it in great ways. Father, thank you for the lives of these disciples. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts so that we can see how you taught them, what you said to them. We can see their lives and what they do. And Father, that we will be drawn to you, that we will behold your beauty, that we will be drawn to you, and that we will want to come and follow you. Bless these women, Lord. Bless these women in a mighty way. Bless them for coming today to worship you and to study your word. And I ask this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Deb. Okay, we're missing one snack list, and it looks like this. So if you have it, could you find me or Shelly or Adelaide or Ellen and bring it to me? I would appreciate it. Also, if, if you're still hanging on to one of these blue cards, could you fill it out or uh, bring it to me? Or also one of the ladies I mentioned, we really need those to put you in a small group. And I have a few quick announcements. Oh, I also forgot your notebook. Um, we are taking donations for $2 for each notebook. So if you would like to donate uh, to help offset the cost of those notebooks, we would greatly appreciate it. And there's a box right out front. If you have a prayer need or need to be prayed for, we have a prayer team waiting for you, waiting to pray with you. And they're going to meet right after these announcements in that front pew by the baptistry. And they will be here every week. So please join them if you have a prayer need. We have also have another opportunity for prayer at the prayer overnight. It's September 14th and 15th. It's in about 10 days. It's $35, and you can sign up for that right out front. Someone will be there to give you information and a sign-up sheet and help you guide you to where you need to go and what you need to fill out. Okay, I hope you enjoy having lunch together. We care extent is till 1.20 today. We, I forgot to mention earlier that we are not ordering out anymore because we've, we've added several other additional lunches for you to lunch with your small group and a newcomer's luncheon. But We Care will be extended today till 1.20. Okay, this week, expect a phone call from your small group leader. If you don't get one by Tuesday, talk to Mimi. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week.